Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we are going to talk about the horrific murder of three young boys and then the boys that were accused of their murders. The accused boys are commonly known as the West Memphis Three. So as we prepared for our Satanic Panic episode that we had a few weeks ago, we quickly realized this is one of the most talked about cases when we talk about Satanic Panic. While this episode does stand on its own, we would highly suggest that if you haven't already listened to our Satanic Panic episode, that you go listen to that first because it has a really important framework for what was going on in America when this happened. Yeah, and it helps explain why this even could happen. Yeah, we're going to discuss how Satanic Panic played into the actual case as well. So I think it gives a good primer on why was that even here? Also, as a note, this episode is going to be a little bit different in vibe, if you will, from our normal episodes. And that's in part due to the nature of the crime, but also the immense amount of information that we have to share. We're going to be a little bit more on topic. So the way we're going to present this is we're going to talk about what happened first, and then we're going to talk about the case that was brought against the eventual defendants. However, at some points, we're going to weave them together as necessary so that you can get a fuller picture than law enforcement had originally, and then the public actually had originally, from what I understand. Yeah. So in the evening of May 5th of 1993 in West Memphis, Tennessee, Deborah Otinger saw three boys from her neighborhood, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch, as they tromped across her lawn. Just a few minutes later, Michael's mom saw them. By 645, another neighbor, Brian Woody, saw them go into an area known as Robin Hood Hills. Once it got dark, the boys were nowhere to be found, and their parents got worried. At 8 p.m., Mark Byers, who was Christopher's stepfather, called the police to report Christopher missing, and the police arrived about 10 minutes later. Mark began his search of the woods known as Robin Hood Hills at approximately 8.30 because he knew it was a place where his stepson Christopher would frequent. Stephen Branch's mother, Pamela Hobbs, was at work at Catfish Island Restaurant when Stephen went missing. Her husband, Terry Hobbs, was Stephen's stepfather. At 9 p.m., when he came to pick her up, rather than going inside, he immediately went to a payphone and reported Stephen missing. By 9 p.m., Michael's mother, Dana Moore, had also called the police. The night went by without a word from the boys and without any clues as to where they might be. That same night, a manager at a nearby Bojangles called the police because there was something disturbing in their bathroom. A man who was bleeding, covered in blood and mud. When the officer showed up to assist, they didn't enter the store. Rather, they went to the window to talk to the employee. When the man eventually fled the restaurant, he left blood on the walls of the bathroom. Police collected scrapings of the blood, but lost the sample. And interestingly, a wall, and I assume a wall of a bathroom would have tile, right? Like something easy to clean. And we're going to talk a little bit about DNA evidence later. But I learned a lot about tile and glass and things like that are very easy to get DNA evidence from rather than something porous or rough. I've never thought about it, but it does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So the next morning while searching, a shoe was found in a ditch. The particular ditch was connected to the 10 mile bayou where the creek from Robin Hood Hills drained into. Detective Mike Allen searched along the ditch as it led back to Robin Hood Hills when he saw something strange. The area, like any forest, was covered with fallen branches and leaves, even on the bank next to the creek. 
That is all but one particularly and purposefully bare area directly next to the creek. Detective Allen described the area as looking slick and cleared off. He noted scuff marks and he made his way over to the creek bank. He reached into the water and found the remains of Michael Moore. The remains of Christopher and Stevie would be found downstream about 25 feet away. Publicly released crime scene footage is pretty horrific. It shows the camera panning the scene after the boys, who were completely naked and bound with white shoelaces, had been pulled from the creek. On the scene, they found a smattering of belongings in various states. And we're going to get pretty explicit with what was seen because we don't always include all of the details when we talk about children, but it's important because it explains what happens next. So their bikes were submerged into the water. A shirt was twisted around a stick and then shoved into the mud. They also found a Cub Scout cap and three shoes. Both the forest and the creek bank were suspiciously void of blood, although police would later recount seeing blood in the creek itself. Additionally, experts would later note that the clearing off of the bank and the attempt to wash the bank down was purposeful. It was to remove the evidence. Further, evidence suggested the boys were not at Robin Hood Hills during the attack because they didn't have mosquito bites. The medical examiner determined their time of death to be between 1 and 5 a.m. Original descriptions of the scene say that Christopher, Stephen, and Michael experienced horrific torture before their death. The original descriptions said that they experienced sexual assault, castration, other extreme genital mutilation, stab wounds, blunt force head trauma, defensive wounds, and cuts from a serrated knife. Stephen and Michael had died by drowning while Christopher had bled to death. Years after their death and after the trial, experts would notice that Christopher had what had looked like bite marks on his body. In the eventual trials that occur for the deaths of Christopher, Stephen, and Michael, an expert witness is asked whether it would be possible to clean up that amount of blood in the dark, and the expert replies that it would have been very difficult. Additionally, the expert suggests that if the crime were to have happened there, it would have had to have happened in the water for it to be so clean. When asked if the expert, a trained medical professional, could have done the, the genital mutilations that Christopher specifically had suffered in the water, the expert said they could not. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. In the search for justice for Stephen, Michael, and Christopher, the lives of Damien Eccles, Jesse Mix Kelly, and Jason Baldwin were stolen. And our story is about the lives of six boys who were failed by our justice system because horrific things happened to these young boys, but these teenagers also lost a large portion of their lives. Right. So very quickly into their investigation, police began to hone in on Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Damien looked exactly like Every other, I would describe him as like alternative, grunge, some would say gothic kid from the 90s would look. So I'd say like an alternative looking kid. Yeah, he was like pale with like kind of longish, longer hair. Think of a long bowl cut. It was parted to the side. Looked like he wore a lot of dark clothes. Yeah. Nothing really out of the ordinary, I would think, right? So Jason had long blonde hair, and he was said to have worn a lot of band tees, which, again, average teenager in my eyes, right? Yeah. Damien was 17 at the time of the murder, and Jason was 16, although he didn't look much older than, like, 13. Jesse, when they first show him, is kind of like a lanky teenager, and he had dark hair as well. Many sources and many documentaries cite that Jesse might have had a below average IQ. And some say that this might be the reason some things that we're going to talk about later happened. But that's just interpretation. Exactly. On May 7th, Detective Bill Durham and investigator Shane Griffith questioned Damien and Jason for the first time. Both boys deny any connection to their deaths. 
Three days later, Damien is interviewed again by Lieutenant Sadbury and Detective Burnridge. In this interview, a polygraph is administered, and Detective Ridge's notes reflect that Damien was being untruthful about his involvement with the murders. And just as an aside, we've talked about polygraphs before, but let's do a brief refresh because there's going to be a lot of polygraphs used in this case. So this case happened almost 30 years ago now, but now the accuracy and validity of polygraph testing has been very controversial. And this is because there was no evidence that there's any any pattern of physiological reactions that are unique to everyone when they are being deceptive. Accordingly, a report from the National Academy of Sciences said a variety of mental and physical factors such as anxiety about being tested can affect polygraph results. And this is why largely polygraph examinations are not admissible in court. They're typically used more of as an investigative tool. And sometimes law enforcement just uses them as a way to manipulate the interviewee. They read into when someone won't take a polygraph test. So they say, like, why are you lying? Mm -hmm. You don't have anything to hide. Just take the test. Yeah. Why are you scared? Exactly. If you have nothing to hide, then you shouldn't be concerned. And then also, we know that police can lie about whether DNA or fingerprints put a person at the scene when they're interrogating someone. So we haven't seen anything that says that police can't lie about polygraph results when they're talking to somebody who they're interviewing. And DNA and fingerprints are admissible in court. So I would imagine there's a lower bar there, right, because it's really only used as an investigative tool. But so keep this in mind as we talk when you hear polygraph I think just like garbage science. Like I don't I don't think it's they're valid or helpful at all in any meaningful way to find justice. It seems like surface level and it seems almost like a game. Can you do all of the things to pass one when lying? You know, like I've, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen people post things or things that have come up on TV like, can you fool the polygraph? Yeah. Yikes. Can you do one, two and three while taking this test and pass by saying your name is something different or whatever it may be? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Detective Ridge also notes that Damien specifically mentions that one of the boys was hurt more than the others and that some of the boys had been cut up before being drowned. Later, Damien would say that he did not offer the information. Rather, the format of the questioning led him to give that answer. For Damien, the question that he was asked was something like, do you think one of the boys was hurt more than the others? And then Damien says yes. Later, Damien would also testify that when he didn't give an answer that law enforcement liked, they would ask him in a different way that provided more information. His mother, Pam Eccles, told investigators that she had been home with Damien on the night of the murders and that he had been talking to two different girls on the phone that evening. And just a note that I think of now is like, nowadays, you would be on your cell phone and it would ping that you were at home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that this case would be really different today, partially because these kids wouldn't have stuck out like a sore thumb. Right. Because like people will have colored hair and wear dark clothes and are very kind. Right. Like I don't think that stigma is there as much, maybe in a more rural area where you don't have a lot of people. And this is kind of a rural area. It looked like it is. So maybe. But I do think. It would be vastly different, especially with technology. Yeah, for technology, yes. I think with the location, perhaps not, maybe. But at least the cell phone ping, at least the technology. Yeah. So on May 27th, Vicki Hutchinson told police that she traveled with Damien Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly to an occult gathering that ended up being like an orgy of sorts. She then recounted that she told Damien that she wanted to leave. So he took her home, but Jesse stayed. 
The story sounded odd even at the time because Damien didn't drive and he didn't have access to a car that he could have taken. But on June 2nd, Vicky passes a polygraph test. Alarm bells. Mm-hmm. Vicky's son, Aaron, who was just eight, said that he used to play with the three boys in Robin Hood Hills. And on one of their visits, he had seen a group of five men sitting in a circle. He also recollected that when they sat in the circle, they would sing songs to the devil and do, quote, what men and ladies do. An eight-year-old said this. I don't buy that, but yep. Yeah. So police begin their questioning of Jesse Miss Kelly on June 3rd. Law enforcement questions Jesse for 12 hours, although just the last 45 minutes were recorded. So that also gives me alarm signals, right? Exactly. And I mean, I do think like we're going to talk about this in a minute, but like 12 hours of interrogation is a really long time, especially if it's continual, especially if you're a kid. Yeah. Detective Mike Allen asserted that he had wanted to speak with Jesse because he had been told that Jesse, Damien and Jason have been engaged in occult activities. Jesse took a polygraph test, and while in the interrogation room, one investigator commented to another that Jesse is lying. And so, like, perhaps they weren't even looking at the results. They were just like, we'll pressure him, right? So after successive hours of questioning, Jesse confesses that he, Damien, and Jason killed the boys. But experts would later say that it was very clear that Jesse was coerced into confessing. They knew that some questions were asked upwards of eight times, but many questions were repeated until the answer they wanted was given. Experts would also point out in the transcript that it clearly showed there were leading questions. Additionally, there were glaring inconsistencies between Jesse's story and the actual events. And I think the one that sticks out the most to me is that in Jesse's original confession, he says like that they killed the boys around noon, but the boys had been in school that day. Yeah. So that feels like above everything else, what time of day is it? Is it day or night? If you don't have that right, I would just immediately discount that confession. What's interesting is it it's like a significant detail. Like, I wouldn't consider it so much if it was like a minor detail, like what color shoes was someone wearing or, you know, something small. But like, this is kind of a big deal. Yeah. And then it's pretty clear that Jesse changes the time that they had supposedly murdered the boys after interrogators led him into saying a different time. And they said things like, so when you met the boys after school. It's tricky. Right. It was clear that it was like a subtle push, but it's a push nonetheless. And so he also said that the boys were bound with rope when they had been bound with shoelaces. And just like tactile wise, that is a vastly different material in your hands. Like and ties would be much different, like the type of ties. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so nevertheless, search warrants were issued to search the homes of Jesse, Damien and Jason. Three hours after that, Jason, Damien and Jesse were arrested for capital murder. After their arrest, Aaron Hutchinson claims to have seen Jesse, Damien and Jason murder the boys. But witnesses would later say that they knew that Aaron was at the trailer park when the boys were murdered. So again, that isn't a witness. No. The following November, divers search the lake behind where Jason's family lives, and they find a serrated knife about 50 feet from the trailer. Throughout the investigation, arrest, and subsequent trial, law enforcement, prosecution attorneys, and defense attorneys provide information, including crime scene footage, to a documentary crew from HBO. Interesting. The thought of that is like so weird. Yeah. And when you think of it, I kind of go to today. Is this happening anywhere else? Well, I mean, I think our our biggest corollary that we talk about all the time is Lori Vallow and these data dumps, right? But that is largely law enforcement putting the information out into the world, not giving it to a specific media source. And 
when you watch, there's three documentaries. It's a lot of content. But the first one in particular, they have such behind the scene footage that it's a little bit unnerving. Like you don't feel like you should be in the room. Right. It is. And even when I think when we were watching one of the many things from Lori Vallow, the one that stands out to me is when Kay and Larry find out that it was JJ's body. Yes. And I remember you and I both watching it and going, I don't feel like I should be there for this. Yeah. Yeah. I feel intrusive at this moment, even though like all of the world's watching this at the same time. But I don't think it should have been there. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. But like here, as interesting as like that example, I think is salient in that that is now a reaction that the public has seen and they're very into this private moment. But even conversations between a defendant and their attorney. Yeah. The cameras were in there for. And that breaks privilege, first off. But the attorneys knew this. And it could be that Jesse, Damien and Jason were fine with that. But it still does mean that you're then a part of the case. And we're going to talk literally in like about a minute about how HBO becomes a part of the case. Yeah. And it's that crime scene footage, by the way, that shows the three boys out of the water and naked. And when you watch it, it's literally in the first like two minutes. Right. We watch the documentaries and there's so many more, by the way, like there's so much surrounding this case. But in that moment, when I saw it, I was like messaging Lindsay and I was like, this isn't a reenactment. This is it. And I don't feel like I should be here for this. Yeah, because I was like, hey, heads up. Yeah. So HBO eventually releases Paradise Lost and then the two sequels, which Lindsay just brought up about the death of the three boys and the injustice served after their deaths. The documentary crew interviewed the families of Christopher, Stephen, and Michael multiple times. At one point, Mark Byers gives someone on the documentary crew a knife that he owned. Weird. Super weird. Also, Mark Byers is a character. Like, for sure. I don't even know how to describe him other than to say he's a character. Yeah, I think that's fair. Biological material was found in the hinge of the knife. The blood found on the knife was a type match to Christopher Byers, who was not biologically related to Mark Byers. Mark's account of how and when the knife was used varies. At points, he says that it was never used. And then at other times, he says that he's tried to cut his toenails with it. And once that he tried to carve venison. I'm pretty sure he said in that order as well. So like my face. Yeah, Amanda's face is like, ah, but like the idea of like taking a knife to cut your toenails, like already I've got like chills and I'm weak in the knees. But like the idea of like you're going to cut meat to consume with a knife that you use to cut your toenails is a little bit off. I just throw Mark away. (laughs) He's broken. Oh, we haven't even gotten into it. We haven't even gotten into it. I know, but I feel like this is enough. Yeah, that in and of itself damning. So Mark would also admit to whipping Christopher with a belt the day of the murders. In addition to the interviews with the parents, Paradise Lost has footage from things like their grief support meetings. Yeah. Which already, that's a no-no in every way. Also from court proceedings. Like that makes sense to me, but it's interesting because of the effect that it has. Well, I can see court proceedings because it's very formal. But like grief support is people sharing like their deepest, darkest thoughts about grief. And that's just like, that's a safe space, right? Like it's safe. Yeah, exactly. Also, Paradise Lost is like filming as this case is unraveling, right? Like it's there for the trial, which is like 
very quickly after everything happens. And they're interviewing parents and talking to parents as they are going through the grieving process. So you see these really raw accounts from the parents, which is heartbreaking. But also like the more you learn about the people who are involved in the case, the more you start like scrutinizing every move. That's true. That's true. Even as we were watching it, we were kind of like messaging each other at certain parts where we're like, did you notice this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially this next part that we're going to talk about. Yes. Yes. So one of those parts is a moment before one of the parents is being filmed. And before the camera begins rolling, she's giggling and she seems almost flirtatious with the correspondent. It's very awkward because then once the segment begins, she's like stoic and then plays the role of the grieving mother. It's bizarre. It's so bizarre. It made me really uncomfortable. It is a documentary. They're filming a grieving mother. But the way that you look at it, you're like, oh, this is like Lifetime movies actor playing the grieving mother getting ready for her scene. Yeah, exactly. It's also, it's a few months after the murders, but it's still close enough where you expect that, like, I'm not a mom, but I feel like you are irrevocably damaged, right? Like, if you lose your kid and, like, they knew the terrible things that had happened to their kids, right? And so I don't understand how she could be, and like, I'm a, I'm a giggler, I'm a laugher, I'm a funny person. My coping mechanism is always humor, but I don't know that if you were looking at it, if it would look flirtatious, like her body language, the way she moved towards him, the way that what she giggled was like, oh, you, right? Like that was like what caught me. I was like, oh, oh, no. Like we've talked about, there's no right or wrong way to grieve, right? Like everyone does it in a different way. Yeah, totally fine. I don't mind that. It's the night and day difference between camera on, camera off. It was a switch. Yeah. It, it was like the moment it turned on. She's like, oh, wait, I can't do this anymore. And it was just very weird. And I don't feel comfortable with it. And I don't think it was authentic. So the same person, Pamela Hobbs, leaves the courtroom during the trial and acts as though she's crying. Oddly enough, though, she immediately goes outside and begins talking to reporters. Her physical actions and expressions are as though she's crying, right? But her face appears to be completely dry. And I was just like, I was watching it because just like staring at the screen, I even like paused and I was like, Amanda, this time in, do you see any tears? Right. Well, that and then when I was watching even that first part with the reporter, I paused it for a moment and came back. And I was like, is this this has to just be a resident. Maybe I misread the name. Like this is just like a resident that lives in town that heard of the kids or like. Yeah. I don't know. Even someone a little bit further removed. Yeah. But not a mother. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a scene in the documentary where Mark is with one of the other children's parents and they're shooting guns. And it's meant to be kind of cathartic because they're very angry that their children are gone. Fair. Fair. And then Mark makes a comment that the gun he is using can't be traced using ballistics. And he basically says if the courts don't take care of Damien, Jesse, and Jason, then he will. He's shooting targets like pumpkins, and he's saying things like, blow me a kiss before I shoot you. I want you to bleed like you made my baby bleed. And it's very disturbing to watch. Again, it's weird. It's a weird reaction. I mean, to me, it's not even just that it's a strange reaction. It's just like the phrasing of it made me very, very uncomfortable. It's unsettling. Yeah, I mean, everybody's going to grieve in their own way. That's on them. But it's like he's performing for the camera. 
Yeah. It feels very performative, like performative grief. And so there's scenes in the movie of him taking photos of Christopher's mother, Melissa Byers, at Christopher's grave. Like she's like crying over his grave and he's taking photos of her. And then he's talking to the great, like he's talking to Christopher in his grave. And he says, I wish you could have been here to hear me sing. Okay. Bizarre. And just as a note, in one of the later Paradise Lost movies, documentaries, I'm going to use those terms interchangeably, he had a song that he had recorded that he played for the documentary people. And as he was playing it, he was also singing along to it. And he does, in fact, have a beautiful voice. But it was still pretty fucking weird. He also, to the documentary crew, says that Christopher's testicles have been found in a jar of alcohol in Damien's house and that Damien's fingerprints were on the jar. And that just categorically was not true. So Jesse, Damien and Jason were all tried for the murders of the boys, but Jesse had a separate trial. So typically when we talk about the trial portions of our cases, we go through details of the case before telling you the verdict. But we're going to start at the end this time. Jesse, Damien, and Jason were all convicted for the murders of Stevie, Christopher, and Michael. Jesse was tried first, and he was convicted and sentenced. The prosecution tried to convince Jesse to testify against Damien and Jason, but he did not. Then Damien was sentenced to death, and Jason was sentenced to life in prison without parole. We're going to discuss the occurrences of the cases concurrently because it's a little bit easier to wrap your head around the way these cases were tried. And because of the same murders, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. So let's get into that. So in Jesse's trial, instead of discussing transcripts from the interrogation, law enforcement testified as to what Jesse said before they began recording. That's just so wrong. Yeah. Law enforcement officers said that Jesse admitted to attending co-ed satanic cult rituals where there were orgies and sacrifices of dogs and other animals. We talked a lot a couple weeks ago about Satanism and how they say not to do that. Like that's in one of their rules. Yeah. I don't know if they say not to have an orgy, but they definitely say to not sacrifice animals. Or to basically not to kill animals unless they're threatening you or you're going to eat them. Well, right, right. That's what I mean. Yeah, you're not supposed to be killing things for no reason. Exactly. Or harming children, I guess, if we want to just get down to it. Yeah, we can just put that right on the top. Like, they said don't hurt kids pretty clearly. Yeah. So in Damien and Jason's trial, fiber evidence is offered to suggest their guilt. Specifically, a fiber on Stephen's shirt matched a fiber from Jason's mom's shirt. Follow that. Steven's shirt matched a fiber from Jason's mom's shirt. I also wonder, though, like, is it possible that a lot of the women in that area shopped at the similar stores and that maybe Steven's mom had a shirt that Jason's mom had? Right. Could be. Or I don't know, like if they used a laundromat together, perhaps. Yeah, there's there's other ways in which I could see a fiber being transferred. Yeah, there's there's many, many different ways. So, okay. Additionally, a fiber on Michael's shirt and hat matched fibers from Damien's residence. Prosecutors, as part of their case against him, asked Damien why he changed his name. Presumably, they were looking for him to say something like he named himself after the Antichrist in The Omen. Alternatively, Damien said he chose his name when he was very interested in Catholicism and that he chose his name after a Hawaiian saint who took care of lepers before getting leprosy himself. Interesting. And it's funny that they're like trying to get a certain reaction from him. And he's like, no, actually, it came from this. I mean, I don't know if I believe the veracity of that statement. 
you know? No. But even, here's the thing, even if he did name himself after the movie, it doesn't matter. It's a name. Exactly. Exactly. It's a name. There's many Damien's. We all know some Damien's, don't we? My bestie is Damien. A grade A human. Sorry, had to. Continue, please. So the prosecution then asks him about his wicked beliefs. And Damien replies that there's a goddess and a respect for nature, which it's not bad. It doesn't sound bad to me. I haven't read anything in any Wiccan books that sounded horrific. Not that I've read them all, but yeah, nature. That's kind of like the running theme. So it seems pretty clear what they were trying to show. Damien said he had felt different his entire life because he didn't like sports and things like that. And that wearing black kept people away. So it was like a defense mechanism, I guess, as a similar styled teen. Yeah, like like that. that's a common trait, right? Yeah. On cross-examination, Damien admitted to studying the occult. And there were items in his room that supported this. So there was like books and history of witchcraft and things like that. Prior to the murder, Damien had been hospitalized after an altercation with his father that involved a knife. When his father visited him, he said, quote, I will eat you alive. Damien admitted trying to claw his eyes out. A psychologist testified that Damien had a godlike image of himself. Damien's parents were concerned with his devil worship and Satanism. Damien's medical records included notes on his rage and that he had been drinking the blood of others. We talked about this in our Satanic Panic episode, and we're going to talk about it in a bit. But there was this trend for prosecutors to prove that you were a Satanist. And by proving that, we will prove that you did this terrible crime. Yeah. And it seems very much like that's what the prosecution was trying to do here. They're like, we'll prove you're a Satanist. And then you can infer what you will from that, right? And the jury did. Right. So let's talk about some of the witnesses. Anthony Narlene Hollingsworth said they saw Damien with his girlfriend around 930 near Robin Hood Hills the night of the murder. His girlfriend was petite and had long hair. So prosecution suggested that they may have mistaken Jason for his girlfriend. Bizarre because Jason had blonde hair and she did not. Very weird. Yeah. Christy Van Winkle, who was 12, testified that Damien said he killed three boys. Jackie Medford, who was 15, testified that she heard Damien say, quote, I killed the three little boys. And before I turn myself in, I'm going to kill two more. And I already have one of them picked out. Doesn't that sound like a legend? It sounds like a legend. And it sounds, yeah, just like the, I overheard someone that heard this. Yeah. So another witness testified that they saw Damien, Jesse, and Jason walking with long, dark cloaks and staffs six months prior to the murder. I want to know where the staffs ended up. They're wizards, clearly. Michael Carson testified that Jason told him that after castrating one of the boys, he sucked the blood from his penis. Jason's counsel tried to cross-examine Carson in relation to this testimony, but was not allowed to ask him about his substance dependencies during the time he was allegedly given this statement. Additionally, one of Carson's counselors from a rehab program called the prosecution and the defense to let them know that Carson had been unaware of the case until the counselor mentioned the case to him and that it was those details that the counselors provided to Carson. So strange. We're going to come back to this in a moment. So there was an expert on occult killings 
and he was widely used by prosecutions during that time. Dr. Dale Griffiths testified for the prosecution, and he said that the murders had, quote, the trappings of occultism. Specifically, he said that the date of the killings was near a pagan holiday, and that was significant. The holiday was Beltane, which was on May 1st. And interestingly, there's Beltane on May 1st, but there's also Walpurgis Night on April 30th. And it's celebrated in Europe and Scandinavia, as well as Sweden. In Sweden, they sing spring folk songs and they light bonfires. When they celebrate this in Germany, people wear costumes and play pranks. They also make loud noises to scare the devil away. Sounds a lot like Halloween to me. Mm -hmm. Folks will hang blessed foliage sprigs to ward off evil spirits, and they'll leave bread with butter and honey to leave out for phantom dogs. Oh, what a horrible holiday. It's terrible, right? Can you tell? They're bloodthirsty. It was originally celebrated by Finnish upper class people. And in some countries, people mix those festivities with May Day. It's a celebration of fertility rites and the arrival of spring. Which, to me, sounds like a bright and beautiful and breezy holiday. It sounds terrifying and uh, murderous to me. However, it is speculated that it is also the night where witches would travel to Brocken, the highest peak in the Harz Mountains. And it's there that they would meet the devil to plan out their evil doings for the next year. I wonder who put that spin on it. And just generally, uh, in case you were wondering what Walpurgis is from, because it's... Walpurgis Night, by the way, it's referring to a medieval saint that is thought to have quelled pagan sorcery. Also, Dr. Griffiths is like, well, there was also a full moon. <laughs> he said that the fact that the victims were children was part of the Satanism because the younger, the more innocent, the better the life force in terms of sacrifices. He testified that there were three victims and the number three has significance in occultism. Also, that the victims were all eight years old and eight is a witch's number. He said that the sacrifices were often done near water for a baptism type rite or to wash the blood away. He said that the fact that the victims were tied ankle to wrist was significant because this was just done to display the genitalia and the removal of buyer's testicles was significant because testicles are removed for the semen. What? What? I, I don't know. I mean, like, what? He then stated that the absence of the blood at the scene could be significant because cult members store blood for future services in which they would drink the blood or bathe in it. Oh. But keep in mind, they never found blood in any of their houses, stored blood. Well, that and like storing it in the dark. Like, what did they do? Like, how would you store that? Yeah. How would you do that? But I'm just blown away by the fact that that bit of information was able to be included in the case. Because remember, expert witnesses have to supply a report to the court. And I would imagine that that would be highly prejudicial information to include in the trial. Because it's in, it's suggesting that they were exsanguinated so that they could drink their blood, but no blood was found. But anyway, he's continued to say that the overkill or multiple cuts could reflect occult overtones. A lot of the injuries were on the left side of the victims. And he said that people who practice occultism will use midline theory drawing straight down the, the body and that the right side is related to those things synonymous with Christianity and the left side is for practitioners of the satanic occult. And so that's why all of the wounds were on the left side. Wouldn't you think almost like the other side then? Though, like if they were like against Christianity and stuff. Yeah, this is all a little wackadoo to me. He testified that the clear place in the bank would be consistent with a ceremony. So the way that they brought in Satanism 
And the way that they said that Jason was a Satanist would be that if Jason had sucked blood out of Christopher's penis, then that would be an occult activity. And because he did that, therefore, he is involved with the occult. But that fact was never proven. Yeah, it's wild that someone wasn't like, show me where it says in anything that that is something. So the prosecution also asked Griffiths if people have cults have any particular dress. And they do, he said. He said they have black fingernails, black hair, black t-shirts, and sometimes they have tattoos. That's me. And so in case you're wondering, how, who is this guy? Clearly, he has enough information to be extremely dangerous. But what are his qualifications? On cross-examination, when asked which classes he took to get his master's and PhD, he said none. Basically, he had a mail-order PhD. He did not do anything to get his PhD in this. And it shows. Boy, does it show. And so when they were trying to discredit him, the judge says, well... He doesn't need to have a PhD to be an expert if he has knowledge and experience. But it's like, my guy, this is all fiction. Yeah, it's just because he played into it. Yeah. I mean, the judge who later went on to be a state senator, in my opinion, was disgustingly biased. Yes. And I do not like Judge Burnett, fundamentally. So Damien's counsel retained their own occult expert, and his name was Robert Hicks. Hicks testified that the murders did not appear to be cult-related. Damien's counsel asked Hicks about Kenneth Lanning's opinions on cult crimes. We mentioned Lanning's in our Satanic Panic episode. Supervisory Special Agent Kenneth V. Lanning of the Behavioral Science Unit wrote the FBI Investigator's Guide to Allegations of Ritual Child Abuse, which was published January of 1992. He basically said that satanic ritual abuse wasn't really a thing. So just interesting that it was like, you know, two expert witnesses and they have completely different opinions. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they side with one. So Jesse and Jason were sentenced to life, but Damien was sentenced to death. They all appeal their convictions, but all appeals were denied. In October of 2003, Vicki Hutchinson tells the Arkansas Times that she lied about all of her testimony because police told her that her son would be taken away if she didn't comply. Yeah. Wild and horrific. Many people speculated that Mark Byers was the perpetrator, including Damien Eccles. And we already said we got some sketch vibes, right? He was sketch as fuck. After the convictions, Melissa and Mark flee West Memphis after 13 warrants for their arrest are issued for writing bad checks. They move to a new town and they are arrested for stealing, you know, just $20,000 worth of items from a neighbor's house. I don't know if I have $20,000 worth of items in my house. <laughs> right? I just, when I read that, I was like, hmm. Whenever I see like that amount of thousands of dollars worth of money, I'm like, you'd really have to like take some couches and like... It would be an overnight robbery. Like, it wouldn't be a quick thing. <laughs> Honestly, they would just be moving me. Like, they'd have to just move everything I own out. <laughs> they had, like, a moving truck next door. Ugh, they hire movers to, like... Yeah, yeah, it's like that cartoon. I wonder if anybody's ever done that. Like, they've, like, hired movers to... Yes, I think so. At least I've seen it in shows or, like, movies. So I assume it has to be based off of something. Clearly. Someone's had that idea. <laughs> 
So originally they were friends with their neighbors. Then Mark spanked their five-year-old with a fly swatter, which I think friendship over, fair, for sure. They said that the whipping bruised their son and they got a restraining order, fair. Yeah. Additionally, Mark was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. He allegedly stood by while holding a gun while letting a teenage boy assault another kid. The teenager used a closed pocket knife in his fist to assault the kid. The kid had a concussion. Per Byer, the knife was his. Melissa Byers died in 1996, with her cause of death being listed as undetermined. There's a scene of Mark at the graveyard, quote unquote, crying over her, but there's no actual tears on his face. So we've seen this acting before. His eyes at this point didn't even look red. So like, just interesting. And as we noted earlier, when re-examining the crime scene years later, they see that there's a bite mark on one of the boy's faces. So a bite would be something that they could easily tie to someone, right? Plus, I mean, just think about it. Like a bite is yours. They could easily match it to someone, a person's bite. Yeah. And often when there's bite mark evidence, people will have their teeth removed. So just a few things about, you know, the possible bite mark. This is typically child abuse. Often when there's bite mark evidence, people will have their teeth removed. And all of a sudden he had his teeth kicked out in a fight. Just seems very weird, right? So experts suggest that Christopher Byers was abused regularly because he was instigating fights with other kids. He was starting fires and he was playing with excrement. At one point, Mark did say that he would provide his dental records to be excluded as a suspect, but then later he wouldn't provide them. He says that they were removed because of periodontal disease, which like his story changed. Mm -hmm. And he said it was due to a medication. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of interesting things with him. So his dental records show that his teeth were removed four years after the murders. The medication that he claimed caused his periodontal disease does not actually cause periodontal disease. Bizarre. Damien, Jason, and Jesse were excluded as matches for the bite marks as well. Mark took a polygraph test, and parts of it was shown in the second part of Paradise Lost. After he, I guess we'll say passes, (laughs) he high-fives the examiner. (laughs) Like, when you were talking earlier about, like, when people treat them like games sometimes, that's what it made me think of. Like, he was like, yeah, like, I passed. <laughs> like, I think I land on the theory that everyone has since landed on. But he certainly seems guilty when with just this information. For sure. For sure. And it's just, again, like we talked about, the polygraph isn't really anything. So, like, okay, he, I guess he passed. But, like, did he really? Who, who knows? So these rumors start to die down with the introduction of new evidence. And we're going to go into that. So Damien Eccles wrote Mark a letter apologizing for accusing him because he understood how it felt to be accused of this particular atrocity. So let's talk about that new evidence. When we started researching this case, you kind of have this vision of what happened. That's pretty fucking terrible. And it is terrible. It is truly terrible. But the more we hear from new experts and the more we hear about new evidence, the more some things seem to fall into place. And these out-of-this-world monsters seem more like things that exist in a world in which we exist, where people do these kinds of things and there's things that happen to crime scenes. So DNA from the crime scene was tested. No piece of evidence for DNA was a match to Damien, Jesse, or Jason. But Terry Hobbs 
Stephen Branch's stepfather's DNA, was not inconsistent with the hair that was found on one of the knots used to bind the victims. So the expert Ted Fedor said that 1.5% of the population would be a match to this hair. And he also said that wouldn't be enough evidence if they were to try to convict Terry Hobbs. John Douglas, who ran the Behavioral Analysis Unit of the FBI, said that at the FBI Academy, they noticed that the terms ritual and satanic were being used together when people were describing cases, but they never saw one case where that was actually in the mix. He said, after reviewing this case, it was clear that this type of crime was a personal cause homicide. He said specifically, the perpetrator was not a stranger. Not only did he know them, but he knew them well. And he said that it didn't look like the person who did this planned to murder the boys at first. Rather, it seemed like his original intent was to punish or taunt them. And that's why he stripped them and he tied them up. He noted that there was a level of criminal sophistication at the crime scene. And one of the ways he describes this is that everything is concealed. When they got to the crime scene, like you couldn't see the boys and you couldn't see their clothing. It was all submerged underwater. So the shirt with the stick had been like shoved into the mud so they couldn't find it. And he said the scene and the crimes themselves wouldn't have been perpetrated by a teenager, that they should be looking for someone who had a history of violence who is still violent and will be violent again. And that the person who did this was a psychopath that could look right into a camera or right into someone's eyes and with what seemed like sincerity, say he had nothing to do with it. And that means they could pass a polygraph. So that to me is all super chilling. It is. Because that means that there is a person who could do this again in the world, right? Yeah. And they were they could be out there, right? Like they were running around doing stuff. Exactly. So Werner Spitz, who is a renowned forensic pathologist who wrote several books on forensic pathology, says, and this is what really threw me for a loop. The injuries on the bodies on the surface, including the castration of Christopher Byers and the genital mutilation, were from animals after the boys had died. He said that when carnivorous animals attack the body, one of the things they do is they scrape the body to kind of pull it closer to them. And so they claw them. He then shows a picture of two wounds on two different boys. And you can see that the way that the scrapes kind of start out, go deeper and come back out are identical. And the spacing between the lines are identical. And these are the wounds that they originally alleged were created by a serrated knife. And he goes as far to say, not only was it an animal, but it wasn't from any knife. Like, it, he's like, it's very clear that this is not from a knife, serrated or otherwise. Yeah. So they also had a forensic odontologist named Richard Zivern, and he was the key witness for the prosecution when Ted Bundy was convicted. So I feel like we can rely on him. Yeah, just a bit. He also said that there was no way that a knife would have done the injuries that the bodies had sustained. And he said that they were clearly done by animals. Now, another thing that the defense realized years later was that there was a lot of evidence at the crime scene that really wasn't even noted in the case, like the fact that there was an abundance of animal hair. But who would think animals would be there? Why would there be animals in the forest? The last thing that the experts generally agree on, not only were they not tortured, but they also weren't also sexually assaulted. In the first Paradise Lost, in the interviews with the parents, a lot of them talk about what their baby's final moments were. And they recount like the questions they would have asked and what would have went through their head. 
And it's it's so heartbreaking to watch and to know like that's what like you're grieving your child, which is already terrible. But then there's this other layer of awful on top of it. I feel like at least they wouldn't have had to ask those questions if the crime scene had been properly analyzed the first time. Yeah. Like they would have grieved their children, but they wouldn't have had this extra layer of like horror. Yeah. This is one of the cases that we've covered where we've both had to be like, take a step back because it's horrific and it's horrible. And every piece of it is sad and for many different reasons. But even just that that film crew shows as much as they do, I think like it made this case in particular harder. Yeah. We talk about the case in the trial, but like the ultimate result is that people cared more about convicting these boys than they did about getting justice for these three little kids that, you know, like I just these three babies, like eight years old, they're babies. Like that's what mattered. Like we had to go on this quest to find the Satanist. We couldn't get justice for these kids. You can't tell me that those law enforcement officers didn't know that interrogating for someone for 12 hours might not be a good idea. Right. Or the fact that there's animals in the forest and there's animal hair everywhere. And huh. Hmm. Well, even the fact that we said that the bite marks didn't even come up right away. Yeah, they they didn't even notice them. So that tells me like it wasn't looked at thoroughly. Right. Yeah. And there's another thing that we're going to mention in just a moment where it's so clear that they just wanted to find some Satanists to arrest in their community. Right. So the jury foreman was Kent Arnold Bias. And they had discussed the case with an attorney prior to deliberations. He then lobbied the other jurors to convict Damien and Jason. The juror, Kent Arnold, was convinced of their guilt before the trials even began. The defense believed that Arnold discussed Jesse's confession with the other jurors, despite the fact that it was not presented in the case. Generally, jurors are told only to consider the evidence presented to them and not what they have heard on the news. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that why juries get moved out of an area. It's because you have people who feel so passionately about a case because they've been following it from the beginning of it being reported on, that they are eager to get quote-unquote justice, but it's supposed to just be what's admissible. And if you're relying on every little piece of thing that somebody heard, then you you aren't testing the veracity of it. And if it's not in the trial, there's a reason. Yeah. So to me, I'm just like, oh, no. So a year before the murders, a Crichton County juvenile officer sent Dale Griffiths a fax of Damien Eccles' drawings and writings to determine if he was involved in occult activity. Dr. Griffiths confirmed he was indeed engaging in occult activity. And this is interesting because this came out after everything. So this was like part of the new evidence that came out. This wasn't during the trial that, you know, people were looking at his drawings and stuff. This is later that they found out, oh, that happened. So then we're talking about new information. So new information about Terry Hobbs comes out. Hobbs said many times that he did not see any of the boys on May 5th. Jamie Clark Ballard said that she saw the boys around 6.30 p.m. when the boys were walking by and she saw Terry walking towards the boys. He called for Stephen and told him to get back to the house. He said that Stephen and Terry were together and that they drove by with the kids outside of Stephen's house. She said that the police never came to ask her any questions. Jamie saw that they were advertising the tip line on the news and then heard for the first time ever that Terry was denying seeing the boys on the day of the murder. And again, this is significant because this was later, way later after everything's happened. 
So she decided, I'm going to call the tip line. Luckily, she knew that. It's just pure luck that she saw that, though, right? Like, what if she hadn't? I'm sure it was covered extensively, though, like when it came out. And one of the interesting things about when it came out was there was many rallies and protests for the West Memphis Three. And one of them, many of them, had Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks who would come and speak. And she specifically said that Terry Hobbs was guilty. So he sued her. Because he sued her, he was under oath and had to testify and answer questions about the murders. Because that's what he was alleged. Like, that's why he sued her for slander. And so that's when that came out was because of that case. He was like, but I never saw them on the 5th, so it couldn't have been me. And so they report that. And that's one of the reasons it was back in the news was because he was like, I'll sue you for this. So a couple of weeks before the murders, he caught his wife, who was Stephen's mother, Pamela Hobbs, kissing another man in their home. There are allegations that Terry told her that he would, quote, get her back for what she had done. At one point, he backhanded Pam and she called her brother and father. When they got there, her brother got into a fight with Terry and Terry shot her brother. Yikes. Yeah, jeez. By the time of the uncomfortable interview where Pam giggles, the one that we talked about at the beginning, she and Terry were already broken up at this point. When she refers to him, she says that, quote, he doesn't get mad. He gets even. Weird thing to say. To me, that makes it seem like even then she was like, did he do this? That maybe she had some sort of doubt. Yeah. Terry has several different alibis for the night of the murders, but they all mention that he was at some point searching for the boys. So like he wasn't there the whole time. At one point, he says that he was with a friend the entire night, but his friend recalls him leaving at least twice. He said he was searching with other parents and they said that, no, he wasn't with them. So it's like, where was he? At this year's Crime Con, Jim discussed a conversation that George Jared had with Terry Hobbs. And Jared, along with Bob Huff, hosts a podcast called Truth and Justice. One of the points that Clemente really stressed was how strange it was that Terry Hobbs reported Stephen missing from a payphone rather than at home. And remember, in the top of the episode, we talked about how when Terry went to go get Pamela from work, rather than going inside and talking to her, he reported him missing. And just as a note as well, Pamela told investigators that Terry didn't even tell her that her son was missing before he reported him missing. Clemente said that typically when kids go missing, if you're waiting for them to come home, you should stay home because that's where they're going to come. So that's kind of like one tick of why it was strange. And also that when you report someone missing, the police are going to come talk to you. And it's a little bit suspicious that he purposely picked a place that wasn't their home for the police to come talk to him. Yeah, that does seem very suspicious. Mark Byers has changed his position on the guilt of Damien, Jason and Jesse. He now thinks that Terry Hobbs was indeed the murderer. Mark made a giant chart with innocent and guilty and listed all the reasons why Terry was guilty. It was very dramatic and unnecessary. It's printed like he got it printed. Yeah, a lot of effort, a lot of effort. It was a lot of effort. It like folded so it was he could transport it. So and then on his intense poster under innocent, he has two different things. And the first is that it would be difficult to restrain three victims. But he said that if he hurt one of the kids, the other ones would probably freeze, which I feel like that makes sense. And then he also says that the hair that was found that was kind of a match to him could have been due to secondary transfer. 
and that's all he had. He had a lot of other stuff on the, the guilty side. So a motion was filed for a new trial based on the new DNA evidence, but Judge Burnett denied the request stating that the DNA evidence was inconclusive. And the concern there is, right, that it's not inconclusive as to who the actor is, but it kind of is conclusive that it wasn't them. The Arkansas Supreme Court ordered the trial court to consider whether the new DNA evidence coupled with the juror misconduct that we talked about before would justify a new trial or the defendant's exoneration. So bittersweet, this next part. In 2011, Damien, Jesse and Jason were released from prison and they all entered an Alfred plea. And what that is, is they basically proclaim their innocence on the record and then they admit guilt on the charges. This way they will be released. And all three of them say, I did not do this. I am only admitting my guilt because I want to leave prison. One of the interesting parts they show in the documentary is that the prosecution has this smug interview out and says, what matters is that we have a guilty plea. Even if they said they're innocent, we have a guilty plea and that's all we need. Fuck off. Like they're still holding on to that. Yeah. And at this point, by the way, it's a different prosecutor. Like the first prosecutor's gone. Yeah. But so like obviously they maintain their innocence. And Mark Byers, of all people, sums up the situation pretty well. He said, this isn't right because three innocent men have to say they are guilty for a crime they didn't commit. This is bullshit. They are innocent and they did not kill my son. So in 2021, Damien's attorney visited evidence storage and found that evidence that they were told that had been destroyed or lost still existed and was intact. The prosecutor, Keith Tressman, is opposed to having this DNA tested. And it's because he says that the testing method, MVEC technology, which we'll talk about in a moment, is not already accepted by Arkansas courts. And that the remedies that would be offered that this new evidence tested, would it be either a new trial or resentencing? And neither of these make sense in this particular case. He also said that the testing could use the remainder of the evidence or damage the evidence. And there is a hearing on June 23rd of this year as to whether the DNA evidence will be tested, which like while that they're not trying to find out who killed these boys. Right. I feel like it's one of those cases where they're like, well, we already did it. We don't want to deal with it anymore. Exactly. Or if we want to be like conspiracy theorists, they're covering for someone who may have made a mistake early on. And they're just like, nope, that didn't happen. I mean, it doesn't not feel like that to me. Right. Well, and. When you were saying, you know, the the DNA, right? Let's talk about what MVAC is because it's super interesting and it seems like kind of too easy in a sense. It is a wet vacuum-based forensics DNA collection system. The MVAC system helps collect better DNA samples and it collects DNA from porous and rough objects or surfaces. So I kind of talked a little bit earlier about like the difference in surfaces and like why one method would be better than another or why one method would be acceptable to use at certain times, but maybe not in others. So simply, it's just a new DNA retrieval tool. That's all it is. And how it works is it sprays a sterile solution onto the surface and then it vacuums it up along with the DNA. So it's super similar to how a carpet cleaner works is the way like the MVAC website describes it. Interesting. So it's helping solve cases when traditional methods like swabbing, taping, scraping, and cutting have resulted in inconclusive or even weak results. And so it's been tested a lot in like different facilities. And when they're testing it, like they are creating the test, right? So they they are 
creating like saliva tests or blood tests or whatever. And they're showing that like on different surfaces, how a swab versus this MVAC system is better in certain times. So like a swab is good and it's good enough, I should say, when it's on like a piece of glass, right? Because like, yeah, all you're going to be doing is moving around the DNA. So in one of the interviews with like someone from MVAC talking about it, he's like, yeah, if you could see the evidence, if it's like clear to the eye what the evidence is, you're probably fine with a swab. Like it's there. There's a lot of it. But what about the times that you can't see it or, you know, where it is on a different type of service that might be porous or think of when we've talked about like cloth that's tested later on. Yeah. It, it collects it better. So typically the MVAC is used when the first option has failed. They don't know where the DNA was deposited or it's a cold case that may have degraded DNA. So I feel like it matches this case all the way. Yeah, I agree. So we're not sure what they're wanting to test, like what specific item they're wanting to test. But my guess is possibly the shoelaces, Hmm. right? Like that's a porous surface that a swab years ago might have gotten some DNA. But what about the DNA under the fibers? I do wonder if it's the Bojangle scrapings from the beginning of the episode that we talked about, because... While there was a lot of bungling in this case, in my opinion, and it wouldn't be altogether surprising that evidence would be lost, the only one we know for sure that I'm aware of is those Bojangle scrapings. And also, just as a note, this is a very complex and long and detailed case. We have not included every single tiny detail of everything. We've done our best to share enough of the material facts to paint a picture of what happened and is happening. Yeah. And the Bojangles one could be. It was just my mind goes through it like if it was indeed a bathroom and it was visible. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. But again, like technology has gotten better, right? So maybe maybe they didn't collect it right or maybe they didn't have enough of it or what have you. But it seems like a really cool tool. And originally it was invented for food safety. That's interesting. Yeah. And then they're using it for this. So just interesting. I hope that they're able to use it because at least, I mean, I'm looking at their website and like how the technology works. Of course, they're going to sell it to me. Yeah. Yeah. But if the things that they're showing are indeed true and like their studies are true, it sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really does. And I hope that this brings us one step closer for justice for Stephen, Christopher and Michael, because At the heart of this is the murder of three young boys without a perpetrator who is still out there, who profilers are saying is still a violent person if they are alive. That is what's worrying. And both Jason and Damien have written books about their experience. Again, there's other there's tons of documentaries. We watched the Paradise Lost trilogy and a lot of our information is from there. We have it from other sources as well. But it, it, that is a good snapshot. And if, if you did want to watch some of the interviews, it, I would thoroughly suggest watching it. Yeah. But caution, because it's hard. It is really hard and it is very graphic. Well, and when you said justice for the, you know, the three boys, obviously, for sure. But also a little bit of it would be justice for the three that got most of their life taken away for being wrongly accused of something horrific. Yeah, I mean, for sure, for sure. Like, I think that it's widely regarded that they are not the people who committed those crimes, but there is a guilty plea that they entered. 
and that they are considered felons, right? To be able to have that removed from... yeah. That can like that stain removed from their life, I'm sure would be amazing because it vastly limits like what you can do. Yep. Where you can go. They can't vote, which is it's wild to me that we are that loosey goosey with just taking away people's right to vote. But yeah, there's a lot of things you can't do Mm -hmm. or a lot of things they won't be able to do. And so, yeah, we're hoping for steps closer to justice. But in all the cases we've covered, I think this is one of the most frustrating where you're looking at law enforcement and other state actors going what are you doing right and yeah because there is a hearing scheduled in june we will include this in our true crime digest as details come up yeah we definitely will yeah we normally we ask what you think tell us what you think but let's talk about it have you heard of the west memphis three chances are i feel like you have and if you hadn't are you pissed off for them are you frustrated i also think this is like a a really good case study of like how to do everything wrong. It is. And when you let assumptions run your decisions. Well, with that, hopefully we didn't ruin your weekend because my goodness. So have a good rest of your weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.